This is your host, Michelle, and welcome to today's episode of the Happy Pelvis Podcast, a podcast all about bridging the gaps in pelvic health care and bringing awareness to the hurdles individuals face as a result of living with persistent pelvic pain. To keep up to date with what's coming up, be sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Happy Pelvis. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this episode that is very close to my heart. I chat with urogynecologist Dr. Nusilio Lemos, who came to Canada from Brazil to help many patients, just like myself, find a better quality of life while living with pelvic pain conditions, uh, such as endometriosis. This episode is close to my heart because Dr. Lemos is also my doctor. In 2021, I had radical excision of endometriosis in a four and a half hour surgery, I believe, uh, where he found endometriosis that affected my left ureter, uh, my abdominal sidewall, uh, my pelvic nerves, uh, and this explained many years of unexplained pelvic pain. March is Endometriosis Awareness Month, so I thought it would be a great time to launch this episode to help others gain awareness of different root causes to our pain and that unfortunately beast of a disease um, that can be a cause of our pain is endometriosis. If you are wondering what endometriosis is, it is a chronic condition that affects 1 in 10 people assigned female at birth and an unknown number of gender diverse individuals. It is when tissue that is similar, not identical, to the lining of the uterus can be found throughout the body. The tissue creates inflammation that forms lesions and growths that can cause chronic pain, organ damage, infertility and can have a significant impact on someone's quality of life. Unfortunately, the average delay in diagnosis in Canada is 5 to 10 years. That statistic used to be 7 to 10 years, so the fact that it has shown a decrease in diagnosis delay shows us inching in the right direction. My own personal diagnosis journey was long as well. It took me over 15 years to get my diagnosis and it wasn't until 2018, 2019 when my health declined and my pelvic pain really took over my life um, is when I, I created a list of doctors within the greater Toronto area that could help me because I was searching for somebody who knew about endometriosis and believed me when I explained my symptoms. So funny thing is Dr. Lemos was number one on the list, but uh, it wasn't until four, three, four years into my journey when I eventually had the opportunity to see him as a patient. A little background on Nuselio Lemos is that he did his medical training and postgraduate training in gynecology, urogynecology, and 
minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, as well as a PhD in gynecology. Uh, from there, he attended a fellowship in pelvic neurodysfunctions by the International School of Neuropelviology in Zurich, Switzerland. He is currently the chairman of the Scientific and Education Committee of the Latin American Pelvic Floor Association. He is also a founding member of the International Society of Neuropelviology and the director of the School of Pelvic Pain of the International Continence Society Institute. In 2017, he made his way to Canada where he was appointed associate professor uh, at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, where he currently uh, is creating the Pelvic uh, Functional Surgery and Neuropelviology Clinic at Mount Sinai and Women's College Hospitals. So let's jump right in. Thank you so much, Dr. Lemos, for taking the time out of your very very busy schedule to chat with myself and the Happy Pelvis community. Could you share with us a little bit about yourself personally, what has brought you to Canada, and what you specialize in exactly? Thank you, Michelle, for inviting me. It's, uh, uh, congratulations for your work on, on uh, bringing information to, to patients with, uh, with chronic pelvic pain. Um, my name is Nuseda Lemos, and I'm a gynecologist trained in a minimally invasive uh, gynecologic surgery and urogynecology in Brazil. And then I also took another fellowship in neuropelviology in Switzerland. Uh, um, I came to Canada, recruited by Mount Sinai and Women's College Hospital back in 2017 and been practicing here and in Brazil since then. So mm -hmm. I fly back and forth. Okay. Uh, what made me come to, to Canada was uh, the drive to explore the opportunities that a North American university would uh, bring to advancing knowledge on chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis and neuropelviology. Uh, the research opportunities here are different than the ones in Brazil. So there's some things that are easier to do here than in Brazil and some things that are easier to do in Brazil than here. Mm -hmm. so, so the idea of coming here was to take advantage of the best of both worlds. Which is benefiting and helping so many patients here in Canada. When I actually first learned um, who you were, um, I've, as you know, I am your patient. I've been struggling from pel with pelvic pain my whole life. Um, and my health derailed in 2017, 2018. And I was beginning to advocate for myself to try to find the right care and the right doctors because I wasn't getting anywhere um, and any relief with my pain. Um, and it really opened my eyes, um, learning a little bit about, um, what you do and what you specialize in specifically. Um, and I'd love for you to explain, um, what neuropelviology is exactly, um, and what it includes. 
in regards to uh, pelvic health and pelvic pain. Uh, so neuropathology is a new concept in uh, medicine. It is uh, not yet a subspecialty, I would say, because it it's still it, it's still developing, right? We're still developing it. But basically, what we're doing is bringing together concepts of gynecologic laparoscopic surgery with concepts of peripheral neurosurgery uh, to approach the conditions that affect the intrapelvic portions of the lumbosacral plexus. So the nerve roots that will form the sciatic, the pudendal nerve, the, the femoral nerve, so the nerves to the pelvic floor, the perineum and the legs, uh, uh, they're, they all originate in the pelvis and they form in the pelvis in the deeper layers of the pelvis. Uh, neuropelviology uses advanced laparoscopic surgical skills together with peripheral nerve surgery techniques to approach these nerve roots. And then with the knowledge that we learned from these approach, which started only with the goal of preserving those nerves during pelvic surgery, we then learned more and more about the conditions that cause pain related to those nerves. Thank you for explaining that neuropelviology is a new concept. Uh, it all has to start somewhere, doesn't it? Um, and it's great that this one emerged from the goal of solely preserving nerves. It's pretty neat. Um, can you explain or describe the conditions that could affect the nerves in the lumbosacral plexus, our low back or pelvis? Uh, the ones that are surgically manageable are nerve entrapment syndromes. So nerve entrapment syndromes can be caused by endometriosis, can be caused by scar tissue uh, or sutures or any trauma to the nerves uh, around the nerves, tissue around the nerves. They can be caused by varicose veins and trapping the nerves against, against the pelvic sidewall. Uh, it, they can be caused by variant bundles of the piriformis muscle or it can be caused by tumors, either uh, primary to the nerves or uh, met metastatic lymph nodes and trapping the nerve roots. So the, the presentation of these entrapment syndromes is a very typical one. So diagnosis of those is primarily with history. So many patients sometimes are like they feel overwhelmed or, or incredulous when we do a telehealth consult and then after listening to their symptoms for about 20 minutes, we tell them, listen, you, you do have a nerve entrapment, very likely in nerves X or Z, uh, or, or we tell them like, you, don't, you do not have a nerve entrapment. And very often I'm challenged by patients who say, how can you tell me I do not have a nerve entrapment if you not even have asked for a, a, an MRI. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and what I tell them is an MRI is just a complementary exam to help me see the anatomy of the nerve. And it's more for surgical planning than for diagnostic purposes. 
uh, our diagnosis is mostly like 80% of it is history, uh, just the symptoms. So 80% of the diagnosis can come from a telehealth consult. And uh, with the telehealth consult, we can rule out uh, a, a nerve entrapment also with more than 90% accuracy. Wow. And that's wow. one of my main challenges because uh, people have grown so dependent on or or so used to having imaging as their diagnosis. And then many patients simply feel they're not being validated or, or acknowledged, but th that's not the case. The, the diagnosis of nerve entrapment is mostly based on history. Uh, mm -hmm. And then on top of that, if we have a typical history, then we'll order imaging specific nerve blocks, urodynamics to confirm a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. but, but the diagnosis, as I said, it's 80% done on history. Even wow. the physical exam is complementary. It, it, it's so, not mandatory. It doesn't make sense to do a physical unless you... That first step is done yeah. with that conversation and that history. Okay. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit more when you're talking to a patient about their history, what sort of symptoms or neurological um, symptoms or past trauma um, would be something you're looking for when you're talking to that patient to see if there is a nerve entrapment? So what I look for when I'm talking to a patient is for the pain pattern. So what is most important for me is for the patient to describe exactly uh, what the pain feels like uh, and mostly when the pain felt like when, when she first felt it, he or she, men also can have uh, uh, nerve entrapments, right? Um, uh, so, so, so what I usually ask my patient is, okay, I need you to take a step back and then close your eyes and remember the day you first felt uh, that pain. How did it feel? Because what happens with pain is uh, same way as studying math makes us better logical thinking. Unfortunately, feeling pain makes us more susceptible to pain, makes our nervous system uh, um, amplify our pain pathways. So like a car alarm, I've been like I've learned it's like a car alarm that just keeps going off. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, if I if I scratch a pen on my arm or on your arm because of your chronic pain, it's going to hurt much more on your arm than on mine, yeah. right? So that's that's mm -hmm. the way it works. And and together with that, uh, the spinal cord also builds interconnections with the motor neurons. Okay. And that results in hyperactivation of pelvic floor muscles. And then the myofascial pain or the myalgia, which is this the pain that results from this uh, muscular hypertonicity, sometimes takes over uh, the primary cause of pain as the main pain generator. And so feeling pain for a long time creates a lot of muscle noise and sometimes uh, not 
sometimes it's not possible for us to detect in history anymore uh, what is the primary cause of the pain because of all this muscle noise. So in this situation, what we need is for uh, patients to be compliant to a, a pain management program uh, because this pain management program is aimed at reverting or improving their ability to uh, manage the, the results of, of this neuroplastic alterations. That it just doesn't explained. just stop at surgery. There's so much more. But sometimes you cannot do surgery. That's the mm. thing. Endometriosis or a nerve entrapment can be your initial cause of pain. But then after you build up all the sensitization, sometimes surgery can be detrimental. So in, in many cases, it is to, to the patient's best interest that they undergo a desensitization program, which is a multidisciplinary care that involves a lot of education groups, uh, um, uh, mindfulness, uh, um, all of these um, neuroplasticity-based uh, or neuroscience-based approaches before going to surgery. Because if we perform surgery in someone who's centrally sensitized and not ready for it, we are very likely to be unsuccessful. Uh, your best shot is with your first surgery, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're mm -hmm. if if we're if we jump straight to surgery, uh, we might we might be burning that opportunity, especially in a country like Canada where delaying diagnosis is so uh, long. Uh, good parcel of the patients that come to specialists uh, are already past that window of opportunity for surgery. And it, it is possible to bring them back, yeah. but, but then we need your help to help us uh, make them understand that uh, although they might feel they have been neglected by the system. And, and unfortunately, uh, uh, there is something that goes on with endometriosis that in many situations, the patient knows more than the physician who's taking care of them. That, we know that that is the cause. And that has become kind of a, a motto, a culture thing, a cultural thing yeah. within endometriosis communities. Absolutely. But then when they get to someone who is super specialized, they still have that attitude against us. And then sometimes it is, it is very difficult because we know what we need to do. We mm -hmm. redirect them and they think we are, we are denying care, which is not the case. We're, we just like, we have no interest in not performing surgery. We're doing the best we can to get more of our time, more resources, do more surgery. There's, mm -hmm. but we, we have even less interest in having bad outcomes, right? I could see the defeat in patients who have gone to doctors and said, there's nothing wrong with you. We did a lap, we didn't see anything. And then they come to you and they are expecting surgery, but you know, you're like, it's, you are skilled in your expertise that you are, you see so many patients that you understand 
um, what they need. And there's a lot of resistance there. And like you said, I agree with the endometriosis community. Um, it's its own culture now. And we do know more because once we start advocating for ourselves and be like, hey, this pain isn't normal, we start learning. And um, I was talking to a patient yesterday and I explained to them how I put my trust into you. I have like as a patient, you need to learn to trust um, your doctor. And that's what I feel I did with you. And the outcome was positive. Um, but patients, I feel need to understand that when you do see that specialist, you have to respect them and know that they're not doing it to hurt you and say, I don't believe your pain. It's more so, um, I, I think this is gonna make you worse. Let's not do this sort yeah. of thing. So, but, and, and then the other thing is also true. Uh, there's very little awareness and, and, and their journey has been rough. So what we have to do and we've been trying to do is, is, is to create a quality stamp uh, with with uh, uh, professionals they're they're proficient in endometriosis and, and and chronic pelvic pain right so because because at some point you've got to trust someone otherwise you'll never get better and in mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it is shocking it is shocking uh, uh, I, I was with a resident of mine the other day and then a patient came to me and, and, and she had such a condescending tone and, and, and the resident asked me like, how, how can you put up with that? Like you, you being one of the world's most renowned specialists in, in uh, chronic pelvic pain, how, how can you put up with that? And my answer to him was, well, I, I just have to accept the fact that all of this is not directed at me, it's directed at the system, right? So it is a very stressful situation. We are usually crushed between a problematic system and an unhappy population, right? Uh, but but it's, I think uh, internet has given us the means to liaise with you guys, with the, with the patient community, uh, and, and you guys are organizing yourselves much more and we're, we're helping you do that, trying our best to help you do that too. And I think Absolutely. together we can all, we can all uh, uh, keep on building the momentum to get better care and, and also to help us practitioners to provide better care, right? Because at some point uh, at the time you're trying to convince someone who doesn't trust you to trust, you could be seeing two other new patients who are waiting to be seen, for example. So all of that is also like, it is detrimental to us because there's a lot of, so all, all, all this friction creates, uh, well, you demands for more use of resources and, and the most valuable resource we have is time, right? So, because we're just so many specialists and then, and then I, for example, yeah. have my now, 500 patients waiting to be seen so wow. in that in that half an hour or one hour that I'm there talking to someone who simply 
want to deposit on me all all their frustrations with the system. I could be seeing probably two other new patients that could be moving forward to their care, right? So it is it is very important that we all work together to create this network of trust and 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 hope uh, uh, that we can be more efficient because there's a lot of people to be helped there and 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 there is and there is this backlog, right? So people have been waiting for so long, and then the longer the wait, the less likely we are to be successful. Yes. So we we gotta help all these people, and we we gotta help people who are starting to feel the symptoms before they get to that point. So it, it's there's a, it, just so many uh, problems to tackle, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, and then at the like with the resources. I need to treat someone who has been uh, oversensitized, hypersensitized, right? Uh, I can treat five patients who have not been, right? Exactly. That's the other thing. So, so we're, we're at a point, all this delay and this lack of awareness has created a situation that is very hard to solve. But, but we need everybody's help to do that. Absolutely. Uh- one of my questions I had is, you are one of the only surgeons in Canada that can um, do uh, this minimally invasive uh, surgery with the pelvic nerves, neuropelviology. Why aren't there as many um, educated doctors in this um, around the world? Um, it's not even just a Canadian issue. It's an international issue. Um, why? do you think that is um is it because like it's just the neglect in women's health over the years or um it, doctors don't go into this for a certain reason what what would your opinion of that be no nothing of that so so there's also a lot of uh that's something also we need to to change because it's not necessarily things are due to neglect there's something called a knowledge gap so i'm gonna uh, so, so knowledge gap is the time between the fundamental knowledge of something becomes available first mm-hmm. and then to the time it is clinically applicable. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the fundamental knowledge of neuropelviology became established around 2014. That's when we started the International Society of Neuropelviology just to start to spread the knowledge. That is okay. one thing. Uh, uh, that started with my mentor, Possover, and then me building up the knowledge from scratch. So it takes a long time for, it, for this to happen. It used to take about two to 300 years uh, up to the 19th century now in the 21st century, uh, knowledge gap is around 14 years. Hmm. So that's how long a new, a new concept in medicine takes in average to be widely accepted and spread. And so the, that's one thing. The other, the other problem we have is the teaching model because uh, neuropelviology brings together concepts from urogynecology or urology, mm-hmm. neurosurgery, 
minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, all of that, okay. and, 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 and we do not have a teaching model for that. I had three fellowships, mm-hmm. but, but if you think about that, you finish medical school at age 25, right? Because you go into college with 17. That's assuming you go into college with, uh, at age 17, then you go straight into med school for another four years. So four mm-hmm. years of college, four years of med school, five years of residency. Then you start doing your fellowships. Then you add six mm-hmm. years of fellowship to that. If you're gonna follow my path. Yeah. I had different learning opportunities and all that. So I, I could become a neuropelviologist at, at age 30, but, but that's because of all the conditions and a lot of uh, combined opportunities that I had in my life. Uh, and, and the fact that I never wanted to have kids and I dedicated my whole life to this thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it's not um, easy to accept to expect but well there's not to be expected of people to simply give up their lives unless they want to right so 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 that's the other thing we need to what we're trying to do is because this pain part and the nerve sparing part is just one part of neuropelviology it's it's a much broader concept right okay but uh uh what we're trying to do is split the the compartmentalize the knowledge in neuropelviology to specific areas of medical care and then applying that. So that's that's the concept behind the eyes and the International Society of Neuropelviology. Mm-hmm. We have different levels of expertise uh, and diff- different levels of mastery of neuropelviology. And then we try to liaise with other specialty societies to implement those knowledge. But but nerve sparing surgery, for example, is something that has been very widespread recently. And now we're going more into the pain management. But nerve sparing surgery is the most important part of neuropalveology. And it's the most basic. That's how everything started. Mm. That's so, very interesting. So like the things take time. Things it, don't happen overnight. So I guess with this process of everybody working to like you're back to working together and having these societies educate these specialists then when patients do come in that light bulb can come off and be like oh maybe it has to do with pelvic nerves and then they can help direct that patient to a team like yourself who actually knows a lot more about this uh condition so that's uh that's actually really exciting to hear that those that that's a main goal with that society um because that is lacking a lot of the doctors that we do see, a lot of the frustration that patients do feel is that lack of education. Um, so that's really important. So if a patient feels that um, they've had a long history of pelvic pain, um, how do they seek out? So I sought out using Google. I made a list. I had your name, I had Dr. Brill's name, and I had Dr. Croft's name, I believe and on a list and I sent my referrals in through my family doctor and that's how I started my journey. Um, How would you suggest somebody seek out somebody who specializes in neuropelviology? Well, if if someone needs neuropelviology, there's not much of an option. 
<laughs> you gotta get referred to me at this moment. There's nobody else in Canada. Okay. That's what I, that's uh, but for for chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis care, I think uh, I think the best way is that we keep on going, uh, keep on growing the repository at the endometriosis network of Canada. Something mm -hmm. uh, with. Uh, uh, we've been trying to work. So we just started this group called uh, the ONES, the Ontario Network of Endometriosis Surgeons, and that is mm -hmm. specifically for Ontario. But one of the things we want to do is uh, create a, a continuous monitor of wait times uh, in, in whatever skill sets each one has. But also what we, we are trying to do is improve the communication between uh, these subspecialists. Uh, so ideally a patient would be able to go into a website. That's our vision. You go into the website and say, okay, I have chronic pelvic pain and Dr. Edwards in Scarborough has, uh, is recommended here in the list and has a shorter wait time. So I'll go see Dr. Edwards. And then if he thinks I have a nerve entrapment, he's going to refer me to Dr. Lemos. So, so that's what we're trying to do because, mm -hmm. yeah, if the more we interconnect and the more we know each other resources, uh, the faster access we can give to the patients and the best use of, of the available infrastructure. There's a lot, a lot of potential on just improving the use of the currently available infrastructure. Oh, that would be a dream, having that infrastructure in place where you're able to refer based on wait times and specialty. Oh, man, it seems like a whole nother universe. But uh, I'm remaining hopeful that it is possible um, if we keep working together um, at this common goal. Before I let you go, I would like to get your opinion on something. Um, if you don't mind sharing, of course. Uh, it is in regards to the endometriosis guideline from the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology, Embryology <laughs> that was updated and published last year in 2022. Um, as you and many other endometriosis specialists and surgeons and the community know, um, that laparoscopic excision for removal of disease is the best way to tackle it uh, in comparison to ablation. But this development group of this guideline came up with a what they call a cautious recommendation uh, for clinicians to consider excision instead of ablation due to not enough research or literature. Um, so my question is, do you think that this guideline um, that can easily be sent here to North America or used, uh, reiterated in a way, um, do you feel that any old OBGYN with a um, minimally invasive gynecologic surgical background um, who's struggling to help their patients will jump into a surgery without the skills or the team required to help that patient. Um, do you think 
this is possible? Or do you have worries about this? What are your thoughts? I'm going to give you my experience when, when I got here in Canada. I was shocked to hear the term diagnostic laparoscopy. Hmm. Because that hadn't been done in Brazil for the past 10 years hmm. when I got here. So uh, all this, uh, um, so the, the current gold, gold standard uh, is turning into imaging and it's specialized endometriosis mapping ultrasound and mm -hmm. MRI, pelvic MRI, right? With, with the development of more uh, high resolution machines, our ability to detect endometriosis has gone much better uh, together with, with uh, radiologists specializing in endometriosis, right? And that movement started in Brazil and France hmm. in parallel. France with the MRI, Brazil with the ultrasound. So we all like, and that was when I was in med school. So I saw that the transition and taking form and then taking the world. And when I got here in Canada, I just felt like going back 20 years in time hmm. because of this lack of awareness. But then that's another problem, which is a funding issue. Uh, these tasks, they are the gold standard, but they take, uh, but they are not regular tests. So it's not a regular pelvic ultrasound. It has to be an endometriosis mapping ultrasound, which takes four to five times the 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 time you you take for a regular scan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and also reading an MRI for uh, to look for endometriosis takes the radiologist two to three times the the time they take to to read MRIs related to most of the other pelvic diseases. Mm -hmm. The problem is the schedule is designed for the simple stuff. So wow. so the system here is not prepared to deal with complex disease. It is a system that rewards financially the professionals that bring in more patients with simple Thing. So high, those who have who deal only with simple conditions with high resolution rates get rewarded more. So if you dedicate yourself to treating endometriosis only, you're going to be paid half of what a general OBGYN gets paid. Uh, that used to be the case for cancer. They sorted it when they created Cancer Ontario, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to be done for other complex pathologies. Uh, and that's the same thing for imaging. The, the main problem we have in Canada is specialized imaging is still not widespread. And then if it were, uh, most of our surgeons would still be doing obstetrics and not dedicating themselves to, to only do uh, complex pelvic surgery, right? Which mm -hmm. is the ideal thing. You want to be operated by someone who only does that because the likelihood yeah. of me like being at my full potential because I only do that is much higher than someone who's absolutely splitting their time between uh, um, gynecological like delivering babies, and delivering babies, and delivering babies, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so they're not going to be as good as someone who only delivers babies, and not as good as someone who only does surgery, 
and and, yeah. and there is enough well that's one of the beauty of a public system is that you can create a referral network hmm. there is universal access to care which makes that every single niche that you develop will have enough patients to make you have your schedule full of just that niche. And then you can provide the best care available, right? And that's mm -hmm. the same for imaging, but they have to create a funding line for this because currently whoever decides to do a niche here gets punished financially. So there's no incentive. You do a residency, then you do two years of fellowship and sometimes four years of fellowship to get paid less. Like, yeah, like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. So that's, that's one of the things we need to sort, mm -hmm. right? Because okay. what's happening now is we're building momentum for endometriosis. That is the People thing. know about now, it. Yeah. yeah, I think now with, with this uh, collaboration between surgeons, now we have enough. The, the first thing is when I got here, there were half the number of specialized surgeons we have now. And I've only been here for five years. So we trained a lot of people in this meantime. Wow. Uh, we built momentum. Uh, uh, this philosophy of care has been widespread through Canada with our trainees, right? Because mm -hmm. Dr. Singh is training one or two fellows a year. We here at Sinai training one or two fellows a year. And then we go like all the fellowship programs that are there specialized in endometriosis uh, uh, are spreading this concept. And then uh, you guys as patients are, are becoming more and more organized. And, and with the endometriosis network of Canada, we are like, we're seeing that patient efforts is more coordinated. So, so, so that builds momentum to push for political support, to, to raise awareness on the problems yeah. for, for, and then we're going to create resources for, for specialized image to, to be uh, um, used properly, right? Yeah. So I think those guidelines, just to answer your question, are gonna help us avoid unnecessary diagnostic laparoscopy. So people will go to, to a laparoscopy for definitive treatment, already knowing how much endometriosis they have, right? Okay. Getting there, that makes sense. it Getting is a lot there. of work. Yeah. But we've done a lot of it and mm -hmm. there's just a lot more to do, but that's it. Yeah, we can do it. Um, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your continued support in my health, um, me as a patient and this journey that I'm on and support for the happy pelvis. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your knowledge with the community. Um, we really um, take it to heart knowing that you and many other surgeons are in our court trying to get the care that we deserve. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for helping us uh, do that and help us providing care and bring knowledge uh, to everybody. Because the most important part of uh, pelvic pain care is knowledge, right? Oh, I cannot agree more. Education is power. And I believe it's the most empowering force in this world. Uh, it creates knowledge. It also breaks down a lot of barriers to different opportunities. So um, yes, thank you so much, Dr. Lemos, for that. 
Um, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. You will be seeing me in a few weeks uh, for one of my scheduled appointments. Uh, so we will talk soon. No problem. Thank you. Take, take care. Take care. Bye. bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Nuselia Labos about neuropelviology. I know we touched on some endometriosis in there as well. Um, so if you are interested in following him on social media, um, he is at Nucelio on Instagram, which is N-U-C-E-L-I-O. Um, and if you are in search of his expertise for your um, chronic pelvic pain, you can find him at Mount Sinai here in Toronto, Canada. If you'd like to stay in touch, please make sure you subscribe to the Happy Pelvis newsletter, which I send directly to your inbox every month, and download a free pelvic pain resource guide. You can find both of those links directly in the description. Well, that's it for today. I hope you all have a low pain rest of your day and I will talk to you on the next episode. Bye.